Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy. I am your host. And uh, today on the podcast, I'm going to change the focus a little bit and use a wider lens, which I do periodically. Recently, I've I've written about and 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 podcasted about whether you should buy gold, whether you should buy tips. The CPI report is obviously very very uh, up close and personal view of the CPI. And in general, I've been focused on sort of the close micro aspect of of inflation and and markets. And today I'm going to give a more thematic rant on risk and how I think about risk and and maybe how you should think about risk. This episode of Sense and Sensibility is sponsored by Simplify ETFs, a fast-growing ETF shop democratizing access to the most sophisticated alternative strategies. With diversifying strategies like market-neutral equity long-short, managed futures, and multi-strat quant, Simplify has a suite of compelling tools to help address the biggest concerns with the classic 60-40 portfolio. Check out their website at simplify.us, and you can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us slash ETFs. And... um, now the trivia question, it's, it's really more of a puzzle today than a question, um, brain teaser. How can the mass of the earth be measured with a bathroom scale? How can the mass of the earth be measured with a bathroom scale? Okay, so one of the most widely used words in finance is risk. Uh, but it means wildly different things depending on what you're talking about and who's saying it. We talk about risk all the time, and sometimes people mean, you know, the daily standard deviation. You know, two-thirds of the time, a security will move up and down less than this. And so that's one measure of risk. Can we do it on a daily or or a monthly or an annual basis? Maybe we talk about two standard deviations. There's uh, risk in terms of the downside risk or the risk of loss. So people, you know, say, look, I don't care about upside risk. I like upside risk. That's good. It's the downside risk I want to control. And so you can get non-symmetrical payoffs. And um, so that's a different way to look at risk. There's there's risk of a particular pay, uh, path. Um, and uh, so you can have a risk, a a security that has a great long-term return, but somehow, you know, in the middle, there's some chance it goes to zero. And if it goes to zero at any point, the whole, the whole series goes to zero. So you care very much about the path. And there are many sorts of derivatives that pay off on the basis of, of path. So there's path risk. And all of these things and, and many, many more definitions can be applied to a security or a portfolio. You know, normal people looking at their retirement savings don't kind of think in, in those weird quant terms, they think of big macro risks. The main two, I like to say, the main two risks that a retiree or someone saving for retirement thinks of and worries about um, are the risk of losing money slowly by holding cash or, or being very conservative, too conservative and, and falling behind inflation. And so the prescription there is to is to hold more risk. Um, but the other risk that a retiree or a near retiree has is the risk of uh, losing money quickly by taking too much risk and watching a market 
take a plunge uh, or a security uh, when you happen to own it. Um, obviously, addressing those two risks have opposite prescriptions, and they're they're very different risks, right? So, but I'm going to talk about risk in in a more quanti kind of way, uh, but but using plain English. Um, and I'm gonna, but I'm going to talk about the risk in the way that risk people talk about it, the way that high end traders do, but isn't in general usage like you know in most venues your your corner bar, okay? And that's risk as a building block. Um, think about a uh, a mortgage security or a bond that that is backed by a bunch of mortgages. I can talk about the standard deviation it has effectively recently, you know, you know what, how much has it moved. And so for a given one basis point change in yield, what was its effective duration? But a mortgage security has a whole bunch of risks that are all kind of bundled together that we can sort of tease out and that behave, that, that will cause the security to behave differently in different environments. Um, and most of those risks in the case of a mortgage security are option-like. So, you know, in addition to sort of having a general interest rate risk, meaning that as interest rates fall, the existing coupon of the security, the existing coupon on the mortgages um, is worth more to me relative to the other interest rates that are out there. And so the price goes up. So that's simple interest rate risk. But a mortgage security also has um, a, uh, a prepayment option. If you take out a mortgage in the United States, you can pay it off at any time. And if interest rates fall a lot, you will. And so if I own a mortgage security um, and interest rates fall, I'm very excited for a while. And eventually then everybody pays off their mortgage. And so the price of a mortgage security never goes much above par because if interest rates fall a whole lot, then this prepayment option kicks in. And, and I get my money back. And I didn't want my money back because it was worth a lot more if I didn't get it back and I got these higher coupons. Um, and so that's like being short a call on bonds in addition to hack, actually holding the bonds. Um, there's another option that's sort of tied to the extension of mortgages that would otherwise pay down but don't because interest rates go up. And so homeowners don't move, they don't sell, they don't prepay. And that's the sort of risk right now that a lot of uh, old mortgage securities have is that they're sort of they're, they've extended and they're they're a lot longer in maturity than than people originally thought they would be. And of course, there's credit risk related to the probability of the mortgagee's default. If there's floating mortgages in the portfolio, then there are periodic caps and lifetime caps. So there's all all these different risks sort of all entangled, and the, and it's and and so when you're looking at when you're modeling a mortgage-backed security, usually it's just easier to Monte Carlo the sucker rather than thinking about all the different risks. But, but let's look at something a little bit simpler. Um, let's think about a corporate bond. Now, that sounds really simple, right? So a corporate bond you know, pays coupons and eventually gives you your money back at the end. And so it just has interest rate risk, right? I mean, if the interest rate goes up, it go, the price goes down. If interest rate goes down, the price goes up. Okay, and your bond dealer can tell you what the duration is. So one basis point change will move will move the price, you know, this much. Um, but that, but giving you the duration of a corporate security is a little bit like saying that your car moves forward because it has something called go. 
And so when a car has more go, it goes faster. And when it has less go, it goes slower. And that's maybe true at some really coarse level, but we can really break down all those parts of the go and find out why the car goes. And so understand better what happens when we, when we put sugar in the gas tank. You know, what, why, what happened to the go? Um, and so by breaking down all the little parts of, of how a car works, you get a better understanding of how the whole thing fits together to produce that ultimate end. So when I look at a 10-year corporate bond, I see, I see this instead of just the go. I see a tips bond for starters, that has exposure to real interest rates all along the curve. Um, if, a, if a five-year real interest rate moves, it mo affects my bond in a certain way. So if nothing, you know, if, nothing, if no other part of the bond moved and, and, and the, the five-year or the 10-year real interest rate moved up a basis point, then that moves the nominal basis point up a, up a basis point, the nominal yield which makes my bond go down in price. So therefore, I've got real interest rate risk. So I kind of have a tips bond, not just a tips bond, because on top of the tips bond, I have inflation risk, right? So we talk about nominal interest rates being consisting of real interest rates plus inflation expectations. And so, so if I had a treasury bond, then I've got this real interest rate risk. I have a tips bond. And on top of that, I have... Uh, I've, I've stapled um, a 10-year break-even, short break-even, uh, since when inflation expectations go up, my bond goes down. Um, so I've got a tips bond and a short inflation break-even stapled on top of that. And, and that's kind of convenient because being short break-evens means you're long a nominal bond and short tips. And so when you staple that to the long tips, the tips cancel and you're just left with the nominal bond, right? So that's nice. You just have the nominal bond, but you see it actually consists of these two different pieces that are useful because we can, we can measure those particular risks and the price of those risks differently. And I'll get to that in just a second. Um, and, and in fact, I've, I've talked about this before. Back in episode 19, I had an episode called Dual Duration, Why Tips Are Exactly Half the Story talking about exactly this point, that you can decompose a nominal treasury bond into a, a real bond, a tips bond, and uh, an inflation exposure. Um, and so that's why I don't look at a treasury bond as having nominal interest rate risk. To me, it has real interest rate risk and break-even risk, and that's useful because I'm going to throw that in a portfolio with other bonds that maybe only have one or the other. So but we're talking about a corporate bond. So it's even more than treasury. So on top of that tips bond and the short break even, um, I also have general credit spread risk. Uh, I can measure that with the credit default swap on, say, single A industrials and, and look at how that credit spread moves and, and all else being equal, if the credit spread widens, that increases the yield of this bond, which, as we said, lowers its price. So you can sort of look at specifically that. And then on top of that general credit spread risk, I have idiosyncratic risk of the particular issuer that I, I own the bond on, uh, whose credit doesn't necessarily move with single-A industrials. Maybe it moves, you know, maybe it, its credit is getting better 
or worse than single A industrials, and so that's that's an additional spread. So, so this corporate bond has real interest rate risk, inflation expectations risk, general credit spread risk, and idiosyncratic spread risk, all sort of added up. Um, and there's a couple other ways, by the way, that you could you could break down and look at that even more finely. But um, but the important point is that I can trade all, and this is really the, this really is the important point. This is sort of the culmination of this long-winded uh, explanation of kind of how you break down all these little risks. But the important point is that I can trade these risks separately. So when I buy a corporate bond, I have this nice little package of risks that that you know Goldman Sachs has already done nicely for me, and they've they've helped out you know, Pfizer by getting them to issue this corporate bond. And I've got this nice little package of risks that I buy from, from Pfizer or I buy it from Goldman or whatever. Um, and, and so when I put that into a portfolio, I'm, I'm tossing in not just a bond, but I'm tossing in this bunch of different risks. Now, let's suppose that my portfolio only had previously in it a short tips position. So I have short tips and then I bought this Pfizer bond and I toss it in. Um, then what I've just done by throwing in my corporate bond, I've just eliminated my exposure to real interest rates because I was short real interest rates before. And now I just added something, which was long real interest rates. Okay. So as part of that package of risks, and so those things canceled. And so what I am left with is something that's sensitive just to credit, uh, and to inflation expectations, because those are the two parts that are left. And, and so now you can see that I could take that portfolio, which is short tips and long, you know, a Pfizer bond, and, and I could replace that by just buying an inflation swap, getting those inflation expectations exposure, and selling credit default protection on Pfizer, which gives me the credit part of it. Okay. And so what I, and so I've, I have two different ways to create the same portfolio of risks. And so here's the big point. Why would I do, why do I do the short tips plus corporate bond position instead of the inflation swap plus CDS position? And the answer is, the answer comes down to how the portfolio of risks uh, is priced in the market. Um, if I've, identify and decompose all of these risks, at least the linear ones, in my book, I should be able to look at, at all those risks, where those individual risks are priced in the market, and figure out if I can get the same exposure in a cheaper way with a different combination of instruments. And if I'm doing my job as a portfolio manager, I'm looking at these risks, and occasionally uh, I'm saying, well, I can replace this risk in a, in a cheaper way, that, you know, by doing this other combination of trades. Um, it's risk Jenga, really, except that instead of tearing down the tower, as you do in Jenga, we're, we're building it up. And so you've got the little Jenga blocks, and there's and, and when you have the, the Jenga blocks, there's endless ways to build a tower with the same dimensions. If you ever play Jenga and you go and you put a bunch of blocks there, and, and um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of different ways you can put those blocks in there and get a tower that's, you know, three feet tall and, you know, two blocks by two blocks. Um, and it's the same with risks. You can kind of, if you, if you want to have that tower with that certain dimensions, there are 
lots of different ways to sort of put those risks together to get the same sort of thing. Now, here's where I go all starry-eyed and turn into an evangelist. <laughs> because that, what I've just told you, is sort of what we would teach in a, uh, you know, an, an interest rate derivatives course um, or a rates course at a, at a, at a dealer. Um, and about decomposing risks and looking at these different deltas and, and, and so on. Um, but the only thing which stops me from doing this uh, for everything is that not all risks are priced in the market. I mean, the bond I just mentioned, all those risks are, especially if it's you know a big shop like Pfizer, a big issuer like Pfizer, all of those risks are present in the market and I can trade all of them in the market. And so I can price them all in the market. Um, but not all risks are. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't go in and bifurcate all the risks in my portfolio in ways that help me understand what's going on. But it does stop me from hedging those risks I don't want or, or replacing the risks that I do want with cheaper versions of the same risk, right? So I can, I can say, okay, I know this security moves a certain way when the weather in Chicago is cold, but I don't have a good way to hedge weather in Chicago being cold. I, actually, you can. Uh, they, they actually have heating degree days you can trade, but, but never mind that. The point, the point is that there are, you know, there are all kinds of risks that that don't have a convenient price, and there's no good way to re, to therefore replace the stuff that you have with simpler, more building blocky versions of the same risk. So I can say that this bond issued by Pfizer, for example, has some pharmaceutical inflation risk in it somehow, because if if medicine prices become controlled, if the government controls the medicine prices, um, or or pharma prices start falling because some foreign pharma company floods the U.S. market with cheaper, cheaper medicines. Um, and maybe this is a bad example because the FDA stops all that and protects Pfizer, but um, bear with me. Um, there is some pharmaceutical inflation risk here, but I have no way right now to trade medical inflation. Um I can get that risk if I buy or sell the Pfizer bond, but I can't get that risk alone very easily. And maybe a better way to look at it is to think about something like Caterpillar, right? That has exposure to, you know, to to farm prices and and to the price of of uh, farm implements and and things like that, right? So price of steel. There's lots of things that go into um, the the credit worthiness of Caterpillar. Um, you know, Fannie Mae. Fannie Mae issued many years ago issued some inflation-linked bonds, and and one of the the things about Fannie Mae was that its credit risk was tied to uh, property prices. You know, when property prices went down a whole lot, then the credit risk of Fannie Mae got worse. And so, you know, if you bought a Fannie Mae bond or Fannie Mae inflation-linked bond, then you you kind of uh, you you sort of would have liked a way to go hedge those property prices because your your bond would you know, if property prices fell your bond got much sketchier pretty quickly, which of course is exactly what happened. Um, but um, anyway, there are, there are ways to get closer if you have that Pfizer bond. You want medical care inflation. There are ways to get closer to having the medical care inflation. 
rather than just buying or selling that bond. There are ways to sort of strip out dividends, for example. Um, but but it's not very clean. It's difficult, um, and it's very hard to get a real market price out. Um, some years ago, uh, Bob Schiller wrote a book called Mark, uh, Macro Markets. It's actually not one of his uh, easier-to-read books and not one of his better books, I think, in a lot of ways, but, um, but it really was a... Um, a very thoughtful book. And, and then he went and started a firm called Macro Markets, um, whose purpose, uh, at the way he described it, was to let people, quote, trade the untradeables. And the idea was to, and I've talked about this in other podcast episodes, to take these risks and, and make them tradable, um, split them apart into an up and a down, and allow people to, to take positions there so that you could... Um, so you could have a price for that untradeable thing, GDP or whatever it was. It was a simple but very profound idea. If you, if you want to know what the price of medical care inflation risk is, create a way for people to exchange that risk and then just observe the price. Um, I've talked about actually that medical care macro. There's a link in the notes to the, the S1 that we worked on when I was at Natixis. We worked on with, with Bob Schiller's company, um, called macro inflation depositor that would have allowed you to trade up or down medical care inflation. But, um, but anyway, you can, you can do that sort of thing, creating a, a security that allows you to go trade and observe a price for essentially any risk as long as you have enough people willing to trade it to have fair price discovery. And it turns out that's not always easy. Um, and having two different hedgers and only hedgers in the market isn't always enough to have a market. You need some speculators uh, to disintermediate the, the the times, the different times that the hedger shows up. One hedger shows up wanting to buy, and then two days later, a hedger shows up wanting to sell. So you need specs in the market. So there are other things that you need to have a, an efficient market to trade these risks. But the first thing you need is you need a security that, that allows you to agree as to what risk you are you are trading. Um, I think there's a great opportunity, in fact, to create securities like this in, in reinsurance contracts, uh, to take typical reinsurance contracts um, that you know insurance companies trade and to extract the part of the reinsurance that is mere price-related from the part that is uh, exposure-related. But again, I... I uh, digress. That's probably another whole episode. Um, anyway, this is why, of course, I I continue to push for inflation futures, not only on headline inflation, but on subcomponents of inflation. I've thought that for many years this was overdue. And it's why I've occasionally looked for people to who want to start an inflation insurance firm where those risks can be laid off and and, and so on. I mentioned earlier that retirees have two big fears. One of them is losing money quickly, and they can hedge that part by holding a lot of cash or by buying options or products with embedded options like, like some of the Simplify ones, for example. Uh, but there aren't a, good, a lot of good products out there to help them hedge the lose money slowly risk, the inflation risk. And one reason that there aren't a lot of good products like that is that there are a very limited number of products where that risk can be fairly exchanged other than for headline inflation. And so you have products out there that purport to hedge against inflation but do a pretty poor job of it because 
they just don't have enough instruments of the right sort to be able to uh, to do that effectively. Anyway, we're working on that, uh, and we're working on the futures. I, I thought it would be 2023 when we would get inflation futures back. Maybe that will be 2024, and um, hopefully with, with your support. Um, okay, so back to the top uh, in this question this that I asked early on. You've probably been noodling it over. You probably haven't been paying attention to this podcast at all. You've been too busy thinking, how can the mass of the earth be measured with a bathroom scale? That just seems crazy. It's way too big to fit on a bathroom scale. So, and, and moreover, a scale isn't a measurement of mass. And, and you can't really put the earth on it anyway. But you can drop the scale out of the window and time how long it takes to hit the ground. Given the height of the window, you can now compute the acceleration of the scale was 9.8 meters per second squared. And now we can use the formula that the force of gravity is gmm over r squared, where r is the distance to the center of the Earth, which is 6,371 kilometers. g is the gravitational constant of 6.67 times 10 to the minus 11th cubic meters per, uh, per kilogram second squared. And g is the acceleration due to gravity, which you just calculated, 9.8 meters per second squared. And then you just solve, and the mass of the Earth is 6 times 10 to the 24th kilograms. So now you probably could have dropped anything else out the window and gotten the same answer. But um, anyway, the source for this question is an, a very old Scientific American uh, magazine uh, question. But I always thought that was kind of mean, frankly. But anyhow... Uh, that's all for today's podcast. Um, I really appreciate you tuning in and subscribing and referring this podcast to others. Every once in a while, I get a nice email at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com with people telling me how much they enjoy it and how they've told their grandma about it or their grandkids or, or what have you. Um, and I really appreciate that. You can subscribe for free to the blog at inflationguy.blog. Um, and uh, follow me on Twitter at inflation underscore guy, which is kind of where a lot of these, um, you'll get a notice on Twitter when these things go out. And of course, visit Enduring Investments. And very, very, of course, and most importantly, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy.